Ed and I were in New York. He was doing some interviews, and late at night, he wanted to talk. He said, he what kind of woke me up and said, I came out and we talked and, and he just said, I, people think I'm crazy and that's fine. I don't care if they think I'm crazy, but she's alive and she's out there. He goes, I just know it. I just know she is. Are we doing everything we can to find her? And man, the spirit hit me so hard at that point. I, I, I you know, you try to keep hope and you try to be realistic and, and, and you want to be objective in, in how you're, you're conducting work. And, and at that moment, it's like, it felt like he's right you know there's something to this and and that that really fueled me from that point forward it is time for another episode of the cultural hall and uh man this this will be uh, i'm calling it now i'm pointing to the outfield this will be one of the best episodes of 2023 uh it is a story that uh, people don't know very much about certainly from this perspective and, and an individual that people have never met before here in the cultural hall uh welcome in to you chris thomas thanks for being here thanks it's a pleasure uh, and we're talking about you, certainly, and we're talking about Elizabeth Smart. Uh, I want to start with you. And then for for those people who, I, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't know who Elizabeth Smart is and what her story is. I'll also have you kind of set that story. Um, and, and then we're going to dive full on into you, your story, how you interact with that story of Elizabeth Smart and, and ask questions along the way. Awesome. So, Chris, who are you? The, that philosophical, that existential, who is Chris Thomas? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, I'm a husband and a father. I've been married to my wife, Laura, for 21 years. And, and those who have uh, who've read the book uh, come back and, and they comment on how fortunate I am uh, that she stuck with me because it was incredibly traumatic and something that we really had to work through, but made us stronger in the long term. We have four kids that are 16 to six in age, and I love being a father. Professionally, I run a, a, a marketing and communications firm called Intrepid. We work with clients here in the state of Utah and, and some around the country. We do a lot of issues and crisis management work as well as a result of this. And I enjoy writing, speaking, traveling. Um, life is good. And, and, uh, and so how do you intersect with uh, the Elizabeth Smart story. So two weeks before Elizabeth uh, was abducted, her cousin started an internship with with Intrepid. And as a result of that, uh, when we first heard about it, we volunteered to help. Um, they initially turned us down. And then a couple of days later, the, the press that were covering it had grown to such immense numbers that they needed help. So we jumped in and, and there were four of us, six of us actually, we dropped everything we were doing and put the business on hold and, and went to work with the Smart family. After a few weeks, uh, my partners who were phenomenal and, and a great support throughout, they went back to save our clients. And, and I took more or less a sabbatical for the next nine and a half months and worked with the family. So if people don't know the Elizabeth Smart story, how do you explain that to folks? Absolutely. So Elizabeth was abducted in the middle of the night by knife point from her bedroom uh, in Federal Heights. Uh, she was missing for nine and a half months and was remarkably rescued. Uh, and and it's just an incredible day. Um, and then has gone on to be a real advocate for for other victims. While she was uh, while she was gone, she was sexually assaulted, um, went through all kinds of, uh, of of horrors, and and has been amazing how resilient she's been and how she's been really a voice for for the voiceless. 
Yeah, uh, uh, her memoir or her book, one of the more, most powerful things I've ever read. It, it really is. I was talking recently to someone who was reading it. And, and I think the key, if you read her book, do not read it late at night. It is. Oh, geez. It will keep you up. It is gritty. Yeah. But amazing. I just I'm with you there, Richie. So so I have to ask you, Chris. Uh, so if, if I'm understanding timeline right, you are just a baby pup in this whole, uh, you know, this PR agency kind of thing 21 years ago. And circumstance, coincidence, divine providence, this, you know, member of the smart family comes to work with you. And then instantly you're sort of thrust into it. Other people say, hey, we're going to go work on these other clients. And for nine and a half months, this is your wake up in the morning and your go to bed at night. I, I, I want to know, uh, I want to know more about that. Was it something that, as you know, you guys all drew, drew matchsticks around the office and and they said, all right, Chris, it's you. Was it a particular relationship that you had developed with the smart family that they said you're the obvious choice to do this? Um, and I give them a lot of uh, a lot of credit for allowing me to to jump in. I think a couple of things. I, I was a newlywed, so I didn't have any children, mm -hmm. uh, which to a degree, I think if I'd had kids at that point, it would have been a lot harder. Uh, you just don't know what it's like to be a parent when you don't have children. Uh, so I had a little more time, a little bit more leeway. I also had some crisis communications experience. I had worked uh, the 1996 Olympics and had been on the peripheral, but working with the FBI uh, during the bombing in Centennial Olympic Park. And then uh, after that, joined a, a firm, multinational firm that had an office here in, in Salt Lake and, and worked on a number of crises there. So I had a little bit more crisis experience and it just kind of evolved to where I was leading it. If you can, and I know that this is a, a some time ago, but I would imagine some of these things are sort of etched in a, in a corner of your brain that you sort of never forget. Uh, what was that like? I mean, at first, I think that a, a lot of people just sort of felt like, oh, here is this horrible, terrible tragedy th that is like a lot of horrible, terrible tragedies. It would have that moment in the press and then it would it would sort of disappear. I think the best way to describe it is it, it was akin to serving a second mission. Hmm. Uh, you know, as missionaries, I, I served a mission in South Korea and it was just all consuming the hours, uh, the work, uh, it being way above my head. Uh, I, I would never proclaim that I was an expert and knew exactly what to do. Uh, you know, as a missionary, I found myself in situations where there was a language barrier age barrier, cultural barrier. And, and I was constantly saying silent prayers, help me to know what to do, help me to know where to go. And, and I saw that day in and day out. Initially, was working 20-hour days, uh, even more than that, starting at 3.30 in the morning, usually ending somewhere around 11 o'clock at night, and, and then Groundhog's Day would start over again. And it was all consuming, physically and emotionally, um, even spiritually. It was, it was something that was indescribable. I've, I've never done anything before that nor since that was anything near as demanding. Give me an idea what that's like. I think I, I, I get sort of the rigors of that schedule, but once she was initially sort of abducted, it was really just a lot of like, well, we don't know, and we're trying to find out. So what, what consumed those days? Right. And I, I think from a public relations perspective, Something I always lean on is authenticity, you know, mm -hmm. not not trying to create something that's not there. At the same time, there's almost this internal journalism type uh, of role. So mm -hmm. how do we tell this story? And initially, it was really the most positive thing we have to work with is the search. Tens of thousands of people came out to search for her. So how are they searching? Where are they searching? What's an interesting story? Who's 
who's got uh, you know a dog that they can bring in who's you know has some connection to the family so we were constantly looking for ways to tell the story and there also was so much interest so uh, you know the extended smart family was unbelievable and they were available pretty much 24/7 for interviews so it was helping to coordinate and make sure that they were being consistent in what they were saying um, but the fact that they were articulate and willing to do it um, from the immediate to the extended family made a, a significant difference. So it was somewhat feeding the beast, trying to make sure that that the narrative was positive initially. And then when things shifted and the family started to be, you know, they were accused of, of potentially being involved with Elizabeth's abduction. At that point, it became more issues in crisis management of, mm -hmm. you know, how do we try to get out in front of it? How do we communicate what we're doing and and how we're doing it to you know get some level of trust and and to keep people you know looking and searching for Elizabeth. You know, one of the things that I remember being credited to the to the finding of of Elizabeth Smart and that people were critical of is that it was always being kept in front of people, right? You, you know, both yourself and and sort of the um the the PR or the news around it ma made it constant and and people were critical um not only of that because maybe there was some speculation like oh is this all just kind of to, to be popular to be known or you know i remember some of those accusations but also then there was some disparagement of you know if this was a a little non-white girl from federal heights would this have been you know, nearly as big of a story as, as it was. Talk about that. So I think first and foremost, you know, to the Smart Family's credit, and, and you would do the same thing if one of your children was missing. They took advantage of every possible connection uh, they had, the church being a big one in that. Sure. Uh, and, and so that was something that we we dealt with a, a fair amount is, you know, yeah, there was, how do we talk about that? And, and we really tried to expand the message early on. It was, you know, she's getting so much attention and here's this inner city child who was abducted that's getting no attention. And we took that upon ourselves to say, hey, we can be a voice for other children and talk about other children. We can't obviously replicate what's happening here, but how do we really try to take what we have and, and use it to amplify not just the search for Elizabeth, but but the broader cause. Um, but to your point, Richie, I remember it was a day or two before Elizabeth was rescued, uh, there was a journalist covering the story. And, and the other thing that happened is the media constantly was covering it. So if Channel mm -hmm. 2 did something, Channel 5 and Channel 4 and Channel 13, you know, or vice versa, felt like they had to do something. And so it was always this, everyone kind of jumps on some little development. Um, and he was complaining. He's like, when is this story going to die? Like, this is like, mm -hmm. I'm so sick of covering this. Like, it, it's just, it, it's sensational. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, there there was some truth to that. Some of that came from the media there, themselves, and and the family was smart. You know, they knew that uh, communications in the media was one of the best tools for finding Elizabeth, and so they were willing to to do it. Willing to, you know, it's two edged sword. They get they would get attacked. There were, you know, it definitely wasn't always positive, um, but by participating and, and being a part of the dialogue, it 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 really helped to find Elizabeth. But it also gave them often something to do. Uh, versus just restless energy. What was your official role or title? Did you have something like that? Or were you just like, ah, you know, the cousin worked for us and here we go, I'll do this. Yeah, I mean, initially, uh, I I tried to stay in the background and, and in fact would wear a polo shirt. So I looked like some it looked like one of the family members. I had several friends go, hey, I didn't know you were related to them. And I'm like, this is working perfect. Uh, and, and then 
When Brett Michael Edmonds was captured, uh, Ted Wilson and I, Ted being the former mayor of Salt Lake City, we were uh, at, at the Federal Heights Ward, which was the search center, and we were the only ones there when that news broke. And, and I turned to Ted, who had been a spokesperson for the family, and I said, hey, this is there's a huge message we need to get out here. It's that, she, you know, he was found in West Virginia. She could be anywhere. And Ted said, uh, yeah, you do it and push me out in front of the camera. So all of a sudden I became a spokesperson and, and you know, the reviews were good and the family said, hey, we want you to do this more. And it made sense largely on weekends um, so that they could get a break. You know, here and there I would, would jump in on things, but I, I my title evolved to that of family spokesperson. You know, the the Elizabeth Smart story is convoluted is not the, the word I want to use, but there is so much to it. I mean, you mentioned Brett Michael Edmonds, and that's something that I had even forgotten of the story. But there were so many times uh, within, um, you know, that nine-month span where it's like, we think it's this guy, and this guy is sleeping in his car in this neighborhood, and we think it's this guy, and this guy's in, you know, West Virginia. He's in, you know, all, it, there was so much to it. How, how do you know, or do you just go after everything because keeping it in the news, you know, is what, what makes it more likely that she'll be found? How do you know what to talk about or, or, or to not talk about? You know, to a degree, they didn't really have a choice uh, mm -hmm. because the, the, it had enough interest. Uh, you know, I, I often went back to the John Benet Ramsey case and a number of the media who covered the smart abduction had covered that. Mm -hmm. And I would often pick their brains and, and, you know, it became onerous. And then when fingers were pointed um, at the family, they sent their attorney out and went into hiding. And so we knew both from a, from trying to find her, but also from their reputation that it made sense to be open and, and to communicate it and also to kind of control the the narrative. I mean, that, that first person, Brett, Brett Michael Edmonds, who uh, slept in a Saturn and in, in, in kind of that area where Elizabeth lived, you know, we, we knew from investigators that he had nothing to do with it. And there was just a huge frenzy around it. So once he was captured, you know, trying to provide some perspective and, and trying to also not completely dismiss something, but use that as a springboard to talk about the broader investigation. So we really looked at it as strategically as we could, but it was frenetic. It happened so quickly. I want to take a break real quick. And then when we come back, I want to pick up what you think uh, and this is maybe speculation, or maybe you have some inside information as far as this, uh, but what involvement the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had within this case and, and to maybe what made it a national or international story. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Bookofmormonsecrets.com, or you can find them on Instagram at Book of Mormon Secrets. This is the opportunity for you to not only be able to see uh, Russ Brunson be able to go through like all the cool things with the first edition hymnal of the church or uh, the first edition book of commandments. This is also an opportunity for you to be able to go and see these books in Idaho or be able to win a replica. You need to go right now to bookofmormonsecrets.com or you can follow them at Book of Mormon Secrets on Instagram. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test 
test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that we love to read your reviews. When you write those wherever you get this episode of the Cultural Hall, we do share them as part of our episodes. Uh, and, and, you know, like your mom said, uh, if you don't have something nice to say, keep it to yourself. So, you know, those good reviews. Tell tell your friends. Say, hey, have you heard about this amazing book, this individual, Chris Thomas? You, you've got to listen to this episode about the Elizabeth Smart case. Share it with your friends. You can post it on social media. Uh, that helps us to get into more people's ear holes. So I encourage, encourage you guys to do that. Now, Chris, uh, you've sort of uh, queued this up exactly to a question that I that I would like to know. Do you think that um, their membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that is the Smart Family's membership, do you think that that played uh, any role, a significant role, some role in the finding of Elizabeth Smart, and how? You know, I believe it played a significant role. You might remember the American Express commercials from the 80s and 90s. Membership has its privileges was the tagline. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that in the church, not just for the smart family. I think anybody, you know, how often have you traveled and, and run into something? And if it had been serious and you were hospitalized, who are you going to call? Well, the local bishop, you know, the, and, and so there are people all around the world. Um, people, you know, in your own ward family that are willing to drop everything with a moment's notice and, and, and come to your rescue. That's part of the DNA that's part of who we are. Um, I, I write about the ward council a fair amount. You know, that that morning that Elizabeth was abducted, um, Ed's first call was to 911, and his second call was to his home teacher, who then called the bishop, who engaged the ward council, and, and within a half an hour, uh, several members of the ward were up responding and helping to search and, and, and take care of the family. The bishop called the stake president to get the stake resources. He called the area president, and eventually it made its way all the way up to the top. Mm -hmm. It was just interesting thinking about that, that you know, either having a home teacher or now a ministering brother or sister, that they can trigger this amazing response uh, and, and also have kind of this line all the way up, you know, depending on the situation, to the top of the church. I mean, it's remarkable the church's organization and saw that repeatedly. Uh, the, the ward and, and stake family played such a major role in the search. Uh, they were so well organized uh, and, and so willing to do whatever it took. Uh, it, it was remarkable to see that, but I'm not sure that they were that different from any other ward. Hmm. Uh, you know, in that, I, I, and, and we've all seen that. I think we've all had situations where a tragedy or, or, or something really difficult happens and and you see how you know, people within the ward mobilize, how the ward council functions, and how we're able to provide aid. I think that's something we often take for granted, it, it, but it's, it's uh, something that is very um, unfamiliar. I mean, outside of our culture, I think in only a few places do you find that type of organization. And also people that are that willing to take the shirt off their back and drop everything they're doing. Yeah, you know, you, you highlight a couple things with it. Uh, one is that I think it's just remarkable in and of itself that there's, you know, that organization that can be able to mobilize and and execute something like that. And then the expediency in which we do it, right? I think that it it is often my thought that the um that the church and its you know, wards and stake organization is at its very best when there is tragedy or 
natural disaster or something like that. And I think if you sort of have grown up in it, you're like, oh, well, no, this is what this is everybody. Everybody's got this thing. And I don't think that that is the case. I, I think that, as you as you mentioned, there are few organizations or few things outside of our church that are able to go, here is the need. What do we need? Here's who does this. We know this and be able to, to spread that out. Was there anything that because um, because the church was involved, because they were members of the church, was it, did you see anything that that hindered it? Anything that made it um, more difficult because of their affiliation with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Well, I think anytime you get into the national dialogue and, and the church becomes part of that, because of the stereotypes and, and, and misperceptions, you know, sometimes you're labeled a certain way. Mm. Uh, and I, I think they rose above that, but there still was, you know, there were questions, even about the word council's response. Um, you know, did they taint the scene? Did they, you know, were they somehow complicit? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those types of, of, of stories here that you would go, yeah, right. Uh, but nationally, you know, it was like, yeah, the Mormons are kind of secretive and, and you know, clan-like, and there's got to be more here to the story. So that was a stereotype that, you know, was top of mind and something that we were constantly trying to overcome. How do you overcome things like that? Is that just an abundance of information? I, first off, being available and being willing to speak, even when the questions are hard, and being prepared to handle those questions in, in, in a good way, really being thoughtful uh, about those, um, but educating. And, and I think sometimes, too, when you see tens of thousands of people coming out to search, you know, that just by its very nature, it, it tells a story about the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even visually, it tells a story. And, and I think it, it helps with that. But those were, you know, those were difficult stereotypes. When she was rescued, the, those were really challenging uh, because of Brett, uh, because of David, Brian David Mitchell. Boy, you'd think I could get the name off. Only worked around this forever. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, something that that struck me at the very beginning of our conversation is that you you mentioned how difficult this was. Not from not only from just like a you know pure man hours of this, but but certainly a, from a traumatic um, perspective. Give me an idea of, of I mean, of, of what of what that was, of of how that affected you, of how you've sort of worked and processed through that, and and how that affects you today. Sure. Uh, I mean, it. It. I'm, I, I've always been an anxious person, and but that ratcheted it up to a new level. And so there's always, you know, kind of dealing with that that anxiety. I fed off of it at times, and it was very positive. You know, thinking about that time period, and I, I mentioned this a little bit, but my marriage it was so difficult because I could get pulled away. I was working long hours, and then after it started to subside a little, it's still at the most inopportune times there would be a call, there would be something going on that I had to jump to, mm -hmm. and and my wife. She doesn't get together very often with her family, but it seemed like every time they got together, something mm. would happen and I would be pulled away. And, and they started kind of questioning, questioning things. And, and, and there was this experience um, right before Christmas where it was Christmas dinner, the family's getting together. You know, I was warned no matter what, unless she's found, you don't answer the phone. And, and I get a bunch of calls and, and, and sneak away to the bathroom and, and find out that there had been this development with some information leaking. Uh, but it, it, you know, that night I slept on the couch and it was, you know, just, it, it took a real toll, uh, but it made us grow closer together. I think over time, once we were able to, to really think about it, but it, it was incredibly demanding on my marriage and my wife deserves a ton of credit for sticking through it and, and, and supporting me. So, so 
if I'm if I'm hearing it, then maybe not necessarily. Although I would imagine it is part of it, some of the traumas as you learn about what happened to her and just the 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 you know her being taken and stuff like that. More of the trauma that sort of affected you was that anxiety and the being available and and being this represent representative of this case for nine months. Richie, I think you bring up a great point. The emotional toll was incredible. It was a roller coaster day in and day out. Roller coaster of emotions. Uh, seeing Ed and Lois Smart, I mean, they were incredibly courageous. And at the same time, really seeing how difficult it was for them, you know, that took a toll. At times I felt like I had to be kind of clinical and set the emotion aside, set sometimes kind of the spiritual experience aside, feel it for a minute, and then I got to move on. I got a job to do. Um, but you know that that took a bit of a toll, and in, in the same vein, it was an interesting learning experience, and and uh, something that that definitely refined and, and made me who I am today. You mentioned that at the beginning of this, you didn't have kids. Obviously, in in this scenario, it was just you and your wife, newlyweds, and those kind of things. How did it infect you, uh, 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 affect your um, parenting? Yeah, and, and initially, yeah. I was I was really really protective, and you know, you, you think about being involved and you think about the pain they went through. And then I have to remind myself what the statistics are mm-hmm. uh, and, and realizing that we're helicopter parents worse, worse than ever. And my parents were phenomenal. I had such free range. That was part of growing up in the eighties. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, I think you learn and grow that way. And, and so over time, I've really tried hard to just trust trust that things are going to be okay and and let them have that experience. Take that tiny risk that something might happen um, so that they can grow and, and, and learn and, and explore. I think it's so incredibly important for our children. And you mentioned in, uh, in just sort of passing, but I would be curious to know more about this, that sometimes you had to kind of just experience those spiritual experiences very quickly and then pass them along because you needed to be a certain way to be able to present that. What are some of the spiritual experiences that occurred while you were dealing with this case? You know, there, there were, um, there were many, uh, I remember, you know, we did this fast. The family did a fast. I want to say you know, eight, 10 weeks after Elizabeth was gone and, and the immediate family and kind of the inner circle of people, we, we, we had this fast and um, we were breaking that fast. And Elizabeth's grandfather was, was saying the prayer and, and we were kind of in the overflow of the chapel. It's where we met and did it. And all of a sudden someone starts playing basketball on the other side. And so I had to run and, you know, kind of Cut it, but it was you know that's kind of an experience. You know this very spiritual experience that's, that's interrupted by basketball. You know there was a point before a press conference where Ed was really nervous and he asked for a blessing, uh, and and it was a, a, amazing courage to you know I think it's always difficult to ask for a blessing, but at the time and and with things being so hectic, um, it you know it, it, we we all slowed down and and you know his his father gave him a blessing and it was very touching and it was. You know, for a few minutes after I was feeling that spirit, but then, it, you know, realizing got a job to do and, and having to move on. I mean, obviously, when she was rescued, um, seeing that it was, you know, unlike anything I've experienced. And, and I know Larry Miller said something along the lines of that sometimes there are just too many coincidences for it to be a coincidence anymore. And I, I saw that frequently, saw little miracles day in and day out. There was no question uh, that I was guided and, and that many of the other people were were guided and, and were, were just simply tools in our Heavenly Father's hands in, in helping the family. 
Take me to that moment. Uh, I, I, I mean, I can remember where I was and I had nothing to do with this case. But when I heard that she had been found, what what was that experience for you? So my story is is kind of off the charts with that. Uh, that that morning, there had been some negative press, and we were working to respond to that. And, and Ed and his brother were meeting at my office to plan for a press conference a couple of hours later. And just before the meeting, I got a call from Ed, uh, and he said, hey, I'm going to be late. Um, I might miss the meeting. I've been summoned to the Sandy City Police Department, told not to stop, not to call anybody, but I wanted to let you know. I said, well, let me know as soon as you know something. And, and fortuitously, one of the few people I'd kept in contact with from high school was a detective with the Sandy City Police Department. <laughs> and so I started calling him incessantly. I just kept dialing and he finally picked up and yelled at me, uh, which wasn't characteristic. And I just said, hey, if you can tell me anything at all, I'd be eternally grateful. And he said he couldn't. And then five minutes later, he called me back and explained that he was in a meeting with all the investigators and his phone kept ringing. And the captain finally said, answer that. Uh, and, and explained to me that they had brought in an indigent uh, teenager that they thought was Elizabeth Smart. And I, I mean, now it seems so obvious, like, yeah, she was alive. But in that moment, I you know, was trying to keep my composure. And I asked him where they found the body. And he said, what body? She's in the room next to me, mm. uh, which was remarkable. And he said, we, we're waiting for Ed Smart to come down to you know, positively identify and reunite with her. We don't know where he is. And so we were able to get a hold of Ed. He was pacing in the parking lot. He was too afraid to go in. Uh, and it was really a tender mercy, I think, for him to you know, be able to say, hey, Ed, they've got Elizabeth. She's waiting for you. Uh, go go in there. And, and so that was you know, a remarkable experience. It, it didn't hit the media for about 45 minutes. I remember sitting back against the wall in my office, you know, realizing a tsunami was about to hit and yeah. not even just so frenzied, not even knowing, you know, what to do or what to think. Um, and, and it was, it was an amazing day. And, and, and probably something that, uh, I, I mean, and this is horrible, but statistics would tell you probably not something that you were preparing for. You know, no. And, 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 you know, you talked about spiritual experiences and one of the biggest was about a month before she was found, uh, Ed and I were in New York, he was doing some interviews and late at night, um, he wanted to talk. He said, you know, what kind of woke me up and said, and I came out and we talked and, and he just said, I, people think I'm crazy and that's fine. I don't care if they think I'm crazy, but she's alive and she's out there. He goes, I just know it. I just know she is. Are we doing everything we can to find her? Hmm. And, and the spirit hit me so hard at that point. I, 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 and you try to keep hope and you try to be realistic and, and, and you want to be objective and in, in how you're, you're conducting work. And, and at that moment, it's like, it felt like he's right. You know, there's something to this. And, and that, that really fueled me from that point forward. Um, you know, that's still those statistics and, you know, reality. I think sometimes we, we question, is that intuition? Is that the spirit? You know, what is that? Is that really true? And, and at the same time, I think sometimes we just have to have the faith to move forward, uh, you know, hoping for that miracle, but, you know, realistic that sometimes that doesn't happen. And in that case, I mean, it just, it never happened that, children who'd been missing for that period of time came home. We've seen, uh, fortunately seen many cases since where, you know, they've been gone even longer and, and, and that was fortunate. But in that time, it was unfathomable. Uh, even John Walsh uh, privately told us that, you know, she's gone. Not even a religious cult would keep her alive this long. Uh, but you, you really owe it to your children to, to move forward and, and, and get some answers. You know, uh, if, if the media turned a, a spotlight on any one of us, 
they would find any number of cracks in the foundation. Um, but I remember this being particularly intense with the smart family, you know, relationships and speculations and, you know, the hiring of this person and the, uh, all of these things that sort of, that, you know, came out throughout this story. Uh, was there ever a moment for you where you went, what if I'm just kind of being played by this family that has calculated this in such a way and I am furthering their, you know, their, their mystery, their, their lies, their, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. That the, the first time that happened was five or six days into the case and the Salt Lake Tribune uh, was preparing to release an article that implicated uh, the family, that it, it might be a member of the, uh, of the family. And that night at that time, the Tribune and, and ABC four had a partnership and ABC four could report whatever was on the front page of the Tribune at 1025. So that night they reported, you know, this story and, and, you know, this frenzy broke out and, and I'd worked with the family that they, they were seemed like amazing people, but I, I, I did question that. And I called the family member I trusted most. And I just said, Hey, level with me. Is there, is there anything here? Uh, and, and they said, absolutely not. There's no way that it's possible with the family. And, and, you know, I felt a spiritual confirmation at that time as well, which was really helpful. I, you know, I, I often believe, you know, in that case, of course, there was a, an important mission and that was finding Elizabeth. But I think even in our day-to-day -day lives, in our day-to-day -day business, there's no reason that we, we can't be led, that we can't have, you know, some sort of inspiration. And at that point, that was, was really, really helpful. I really appreciate that perspective. I don't think that, uh, that many people either are comfortable enough to share that or uh, seek that kind of confirmation and guidance in what they do, right? I mean, a lot of what I do, I do these kind of interviews and then I help people plan awesome parties. And there are there are opportunities where like I I will feel guided or prompted by the spirit. And, and even saying that out loud, like in party planning, there's something that guides yeah. me by the spirit. That sounds ridiculous, except that to me, it is that affirmation that God's like, yeah, hey, man, I got you. And in this case, in this season, in this time, you're doing this, but I'm here for all the things. So I appreciate your willingness to to kind of speak to that. That's something that I don't think we hear very often. Well, and, and Richie, I, I, I say to that as well, I don't know that I'm always praying or always thinking or trying to confirm everything. It's just sometimes in those moments, you know, very similar to the case where I'm presenting and wow, what I came to present is not what they were expecting. You know, where do I go with that? It's in those moments where I'm often seeking inspiration or, you know, this is a decision. You know, does it feel right? Does it not feel right? We're constantly being prompted if we'll listen. Uh, sometimes following it can be really hard, but but I, I really think it's part of our daily lives if we'll let it be. Yeah. I want to take another break. Uh, when we come back, there are three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you. Plus, I got some other things I want to find out about before we let you go. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Best DJ in Utah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country. Uh, but especially here in Utah, been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a, a prom or two for different listeners of the Cultural Hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the Cultural Hall because maybe, just maybe, I give a Cultural Hall discount. Uh, all sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a, a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. 
I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. Uh, whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop, and they start at only $29 a month, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember, you can always become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. That gets you the ability to hear or watch the uh, episodes far before they publish. It also allows you to hang out with other people who love the Cultural Hall just as much as you do for as little as $5 uh, a month. You can be a a Patreon saint. And again, that gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group. So be sure you go to Patreon right now. Uh, All right. So you have written uh, a book called Unexpected, the backstory of finding Elizabeth Smart and growing up in the culture of an American religion. Uh, The foreword is by Elizabeth Smart. So that lets me know that, you know, that this is in conjunction, certainly with the family. This isn't a, you know, an inciting tell-all that Chris is finally coming out of this. But what made you decide to write about this? What made you decide to write about this now? Give me an idea a little bit about where this is coming from. Absolutely. And and I, I knew I had a story, you know, as soon as you know, the, the smart case ended. I knew that there was a story there. It just never felt right. It just never seemed to to work. During COVID, uh, I wrote a, a book about growing up next door to an alcoholic who was a hidden broken war hero and, and coming to understand um, his secret before it was too late. And in writing that book, I wrote an epilogue and started tracing all of these lessons I had learned uh, to the smart case. And my wife read it and said, that's your book. Your book is writing about these two things together. And I said, impossible. I, I, you know, I, I, I could never make it work and was fortunate to... Uh, connect with a woman named Marion Roach Smith, uh, who's a New York Times, former New York Times reporter and and successful author who consulted with me and helped me structure it. Uh, But really, I I go back and forth. And the glue in this is the culture. It's the culture of the church. And and, and that so much of what I learned growing up uh, in the church prepared me for that experience. And I don't think that's uncommon. I think those of us, again, we take this for granted. We take for granted that we start giving talks in primary at a very young age. We take for granted the service. We take for granted all the different things we do in the church and and how they prepare us, not only to be functioning members of society, but but really allow us to be more than maybe we might be without it. Hmm. Can you give me an idea? I mean, we talked about some of the things that you certainly learned from the smart case itself, but give me an idea of something that you can pinpoint and you go, this was a lesson I learned in my youth, and this is how it applied within the smart case. Absolutely. Something that I still struggle with today, but it, it's a common theme in the book, is, is not labeling and stereotyping people. We, mm-hmm. we are so judgmental, I think, by human nature, and I think in the church, sometimes we're even more judgmental. Are they a member of the church? Aren't they a member of the church? Are, are they, they less active? Are, or are they, they not? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and, and we, we assign certain levels, you know, to people. And it's something that is very corrosive. And I really learned from my neighbor growing up, once I grew to understand him, um, you know, that his story was much deeper than what I had told myself uh, in the 13 years living next door to each other. And so I really tried to keep an open mind. Uh, with whomever I was working with, whether it was a journalist that was being really difficult and snarky, uh, or someone who was struggling in a certain area, I I, I try to do that. I can't say I'm great at it, um, 
that, that I'm able to do it all the time. But that that really helped me um, throughout having uh, thick skin. I mean, th this neighbor, he he was verbally abusive. At one point we got in a fight. Um, <laughs> I mean, he threatened to shoot me. I mean, it was, Jeez. I, you know, it was, it was a brutal experience. And, and I think I learned a lot from that as far as being able to, to take, you know, some criticism, being able to take the heat. Um, so that, that really helped. Um, and then just some of the communications, you know, growing up, um, speaking and, and having served a mission, I think all those skills really prepared me in a unique way to work with the family. And it's awesome to uh, to be able to take a moment, and the the pandemic created this for so many people. I you know for as horrible as it was, which it was, the ability to to turn perspective for so many people to be able to go hold on a minute in a way that you wouldn't maybe be able to do otherwise. Let's look at how, you know, I have had my hand in your life, prepared you for this allowed you for this, uh, blessed you post this and being able to, to, you know, not only share, um, that with, you know, your family and those that are closest with you, but now in, in this memoir that you've released, it is, uh, is the purpose of this book like, Hey, this was my pandemic project. Is it, here are some things you didn't know about the Elizabeth smart case. And I want to make sure people know this before I go to my grave. Is it, you know, the, culture of the church is great and and people should love it. What's the point? I, I, I try to take an objective look at the culture. And I say objective, being a, a, an active member in the church, I'm going to see it very differently from somebody who's out of the church, for example. Mm -hmm. but, but looking at it, you know, it, its strengths, it, its weaknesses, and its idiosyncrasies, uh, and, and examining those was, was really important. But I, I think that the takeaway from it uh, it really is the importance of service. I saw that time and time again throughout, especially the volunteer effort, and, and saw how people coming together with a common cause, how we, we put aside everything. We put, put aside our differences, and, and we really become one, and it's something we need more than ever, uh, and it, especially in today's polarized environment. It feels like everything is polarized. Mm -hmm. Our country, our community, even our neighborhoods are becoming polarized, and we're much more alike than we are different. Uh, and, and I think that lesson came through, you know, it was really incredible to step back and have an opportunity to analyze uh, some of those experiences growing up and then during the SMART case and kind of slow it down and look at it from different angles and try to see it through other people's eyes and, and really recognizing how different experiences in my life uh, prepared me. And I, you know, I think it's kind of the plan of salvation to a degree, right? We experience hmm. adversity and, and certain people come into our lives and they prepare us for the next round of opportunities and adversity. And, and we grow and progress through that. And I was really able to see that. I think it would, it was very different than if I had written this book, you know, a year or two after Elizabeth was rescued, I think it would have been very factual. Here's what happened. Here were some of the interesting behind the scenes stories, but really giving it some context and meaning was an amazing experience for me. And I, I'm hoping that that those who read it, you know, that it, it will speak to them, that it will be inspiring. You know, people uh, will not be surprised to know that we're recording this, you know, much before it uh, actually gets released. It gets released uh, tomorrow as this comes out, the 7th of March. So people will be able to uh, click on a link and be able to purchase this and and be able to not only either get the book itself or be able to listen to an audio book, which is great. That's how I consume most of my books. Um, what has the machine of getting this book out 
been like? You've been Good Morning America and New York and, you know, all of these things, certainly because of the interest of the Elizabeth Smart case, but also because this is a 20-year a anniversary. What has all that been like? You know, it, it's been a whirlwind. And, and you know, when you talk about reaction to the book, uh, you know, a couple, a couple of thoughts on that. One is probably the most fulfilling aspect of, of writing it was Elizabeth's response after she read it. Um, she, I gave it to her on a Friday night and Saturday morning, she called me and, and had read all the way through it and wow. you know, just was, could not be more complimentary. We spoke for about two and a half hours and, you know, she, she knew a lot of the stories, but she didn't know the depth of, of some of the things that had happened. Uh, but, but having her approval of it was, was, was really cool. The other thing that I was kind of hoping to accomplish and, and being able to get on, you know, Good Morning America and, and getting it in the national media. I really do want to tell a story about our culture. I think it's it's maligned, it's misunderstood. Um, in writing the book, I worked with a group of writers from around the country who had no connection to the church. And in some initial drafts of, of some of the things I'd written, they kept pushing me, well, wait, what, you know, what happened here? Why did you do that? And it was really cool to work with them because they they helped me to see that my culture was different and rich. And in the same vein, they could be a sounding board uh, so that, you know, I was writing something that hopefully will resonate, you know, with the masses. You know, the, my goal was to be informative and inspiring and non-threatening to those not of our faith and at the same time provide something, you know, meaningful and affirming to those who are members of the church. Yeah. The name of the book is Unexpected. It's the backstory of finding Elizabeth Smart and growing up in the culture of an American religion. Uh, author Chris Thomas has been with me. Now, before I let you go, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you at this moment. The first question is, Is do you have a calling, sir? And if so, what is it? Yes, I'm a deacon's quorum advisor, and it's a really cool calling because I am assigned to help them learn how to teach lessons. So I'm kind of a trainer of lessons, which is such a cool skill. I wish they had done that when I was growing up. How's it going so far? Amazing. I, 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 in fact, I assigned two deacons last week and I couldn't believe the response. I give them a, I give them jazz socks. So they join the sock club when they're done. And these guys were, oh, we're going to get in the sock club. And I was like, this is awesome because there's nothing worse than, you know, dragging somebody along and, and you know, when there's enthusiasm for it. But it, it really is because I think the other boys in the quorum have done such an amazing job teaching. So they teach each other. Is that essentially what you're doing? You're teaching how to teach each other? Yeah. So we we put them in pairs and they teach once or twice a month. They each, each boy gets a, a turn once a year to teach with somebody else. And we have a formula that we work through and really teach them how to present in, in a meaningful and impactful way. That's incredible. It's a cool calling and very inspired Bishop that brought me into that. He has He has an advisor in each of the quorums that does the same thing. I love that. That's incredible. Uh, the second uh, the second question we ask everyone is, uh, if you could pick a calling, either one that's made up or pick one uh, that exists, what would you pick? I think this one's really great. Uh, this is kind of a dream calling. The other, I, I had the opportunity to teach uh, marriage and family relations. I know when Jennifer Finlayson Fife was on a while back, she she mentioned how her bishop gave her the leeway to kind of create her own curriculum. And I had that same experience. I'm by no means uh, have her ability. She's incredible. Um, but having, you know, I've always, I always believe that teaching is learning twice. And so having the opportunity to go through and really learn that material was amazing. So that would be another one that would be really cool to do again. You know, uh, you have mentioned her enough times. I can tell that your wife is an incredible uh, person, a cr incredible support, incredible individual. And it, it, it's fun, uh, especially for those who can be able to see you, to see you, 
I sort of light up when you talk about that relationship and how precious that is to you. So I, I, I that's, that's awesome. I just see it and I can, I can sort of feel it. And I wanted to put words to that. Well, um, the, that, that degree, just to add, she's been an amazing partner, not just through that, but through the book was a sounding board. And, you know, really my name's on the book, but hers could be right under it. She did, you know, just such a remarkable job working with me. I love her to death. The last question we ask everyone, we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of the faith, I think, is this idea of progression. I mean, I, I think that's unique to our religion in that we see ourselves as progressing, not just now, but but eternally. And and seeing that, you know, that and, and progression is not easy. It's a struggle. Uh, but having that that in mind, that that's what we're working towards. And that's what everybody else is working towards. We're all struggling. We're all imperfect. We're all flawed. Uh, and, and through that, though, God is refining us and, and making us better. Uh, just that idea, the plan of salvation and progression is something that that really resonates with me. Well, Chris, uh, again, people can find the link for this book in the show notes. We'll leave the Audible link as well. So people, if they consume it that way, that they can be able to get that. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. All 